The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Have you ever messed up before? Like not a not a little mess up, but a massive mess up. The type of mess up where it can ruin your entire life. The type of mess up where once you do it, once you mess up, you can barely look at yourself in the mirror. You ever experienced that before? Has that ever happened to you before? Well, if you have, you're actually not alone. In fact, there was one of the greatest men in the Bible that had a mess up just like that. The year was approximately 980 BC, and David, this man David, was the king over Israel. And King David sent his men into battle, and so all his men were gone, and he stayed behind uh, in his palace. And as he was walking uh, on his palace balcony one day, he was walking and looking at his kingdom, he looked over and he saw a woman. And not only did he see a woman, but he saw this woman bathing, and he liked what he saw. He liked it so much that he had this woman brought into the palace and he had a sexual uh, relationship with her. And so he slept with this woman. Not only that, he didn't stop there, but he found out that this woman's husband was a soldier in his army. And you know what he did? King David had that man put to the front of the, uh, of the line of battle so that when the enemies engaged, when the armies engaged in battle, the people in the front lines, they die. That's just what happens. And so he put Bathsheba's husband into the front lines so that he surely would die. And guess what? He did. And so David started, he, he did this and then he was living his life pretending like it didn't happen. Pretending like he didn't sleep with this woman. Pretending like he didn't kill and murder her husband. He thought he got away with it. Until one day, David, uh, God sent a prophet. His name was Nathan. And the prophet Nathan approached King David. Now, that may sound like an easy thing to do, but that wasn't easy. He was actually risking his life going to see King David. Because you didn't just go and approach a king, but he did. God told him to go and do it, and he did it, risking his life. And he said, King David, I just want to tell you a story. King David said, okay, tell me a story. And the prophet Nathan said, okay, David, there was this rich man that had, that had everything that you could imagine. He had all the cattle, all the horses, all the sheep in the world. He had tons of stuff. There was this rich man. And then there was this poor man. This poor man barely had anything. The only thing that he really had was this one little lamb. That's all he had. And the rich man one day had, a, uh, had, had some guests coming over and he was going to have this big feast and instead of taking one of his animals and killing one of his animals and using that as the food for his guests, he stole the one tiny lamb that that poor man had. And he took it and he killed that tiny lamb that that poor man had. He stole it from him. Well, when King David heard this, he was furious. He looked at the prophet Nathan. He said, he said, who is this man? We need to find this man. We need to punish him. Not only do we need to punish him, but we need to kill this man. And the prophet Nathan, bold as ever, looked right at King David and he pointed his finger at him. And he said, King David, you are that man. That's exactly what you did when you took Bathsheba and when you killed her husband. You are that man. Now at this tense moment, when King David was getting called out for the thing that he did, David had two options here. 
Option number one, he could conceal his failures. He could have denied the charge. He could have laughed at Nathan's, in Nathan's face and he could have thrown him out of the palace. In fact, he could have actually killed the prophet Nathan right then and there. David had absolute power. He was the king. He could have killed him and it would have been the end of this accusation. So he could have concealed the failure or he could have confessed the failure. He could have admitted to the charge. He could have said, listen, I was wrong. And he could have taken responsibilities for his actions. Have you ever been in that type of situation before? You've lied and you're now contemplating covering it up. You've cheated and you're contemplating passing the blame. You've done something wrong and you're trying to think and conspire of how you're going to get out of it. You failed and you're in that middle spot and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I'm going to confess. I don't know if I'm going to admit to it or not. You've done something wrong and you don't know if you're going to conceal it or confess it. Well, this decision for King David was the turning point of his life. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David finally comes to his senses. And David says this, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what it feels like to take responsibility for the pain that you've caused? You know what it feels like to be sorry for something that you did? What do you do when you feel sorry? What do you say when you're sorry? Well, David, King David, he messed up big time and he was sorry. And in the next few minutes, we're going to actually learn how he processed through this painful time. And we're going to discover the four stages of being sorry that King David went through. And if you're taking notes today, stage one begins with confession. Stage one begins with confession. David could have lied, but he didn't. He could have tried to get out of it, but he didn't. He could, could have tried to conceal the truth and pushed it away. He could have killed the prophet Nathan, but he didn't. Instead, David realizes that he's done something wrong, something horribly wrong, and King David was sorry, and he wants to take the next step. He now wants to make things right with God. You see, the reality is it's so much easier to conceal your failure. But if you want to change, if you want to make things right, if you're truly sorry, you confess it. You might be thinking, okay, well, why, do I, why would I have to confess it? Is confessing my failures to God kind of like telling on myself? Like, if God knows everything, why would I need to confess? As your outline says, God will only forgive what isn't concealed. God will only forgive what isn't concealed. You see, when we mess up, our initial urge is to cover it up. It's to, it's to put a blanket over it, but we need to fight that urge. We need to bring it out into the open. You know why? Because confessing your failures does something to you. When you confess your failure, it shows the condition of your heart. When you confess your failure, it shows that you want to change. When you confess your failure, it shows that you're willing to change. It shows that you have a repentant heart. Confessing your failure to God allows God to take over after you fail. You see, David didn't try to cover up what he did. He didn't try to run away from the darkest moment of his life. He didn't try to blame others or deny the fact. He did the opposite. He confessed. And not only did he confess to the prophet Nathan, but he published a sorrowful poem, which was written as Psalm chapter 51. And in this psalm, he confessed the darkest sin of his life, and he was open and honest about his failures. 
You see, there's 150 psalms in the Bible, and we don't know the story of many of those psalms, but we do know the backstory of Psalm chapter 51. And as we've been learning in this series, if, you, if this is your first week here at Broadway in a while, we're, we're on this playlist series, and we're talking about these psalms that are in the Bible, and psalms are songs directed to God and directed from the heart. They're songs of worship and they're prayers. And in the past few weeks, we've been unpacking uh, psalms about when you're suffering and about when you're grateful, about when you're angry. And today, we're actually going to learn a new, a new word for some of you. We're going to unpack a penitential song. Everyone say penitential. Let's try it. Penitential. Now, penitential psalms are songs of confession. The psalms, the, 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 these psalms are expressive of sorrow and sin. The, the men that wrote these psalms, they were sorry for what they had done. And as David penned this psalm, he was the strong king who failed. He was the leader who couldn't resist temptation. He was the man who had so much potential, but royally messed up. He was the husband who could not say no. That was his story. And he wanted to change. He wanted forgiveness. At this moment, he was sorry. And David's decision to confess his failures began this journey of redemption in his life. This decision opened up a new chapter in David's life, a chapter where God would redeem the narrative of David's life. And in Psalm chapter 51, we see the raw emotion and honesty of a broken man confessing to God. In Psalm 51, we see David's thought process as he, as, he, as he writes this poem out to God. In Psalm chapter 51, it outlines the stages of being sorry that David walks through. And actually, Psalm 51 gives us the words to say when we've had a major mess up in our life. And David begins like this. In verse 1, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. You see, right off the bat, David acknowledges his sin and his need for forgiveness and restoration. He says, Have mercy, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love and your great compassion. You see, he's not denying his wrongdoing. He's not getting defensive. In, in, in fact, he's actually making a very bold ask. David is asking for mercy instead of punishment. He's saying, God, I know I deserve this punishment, but your mercies are so great. Your love is so grand. Your compassion is so wide. And that is the only reason I dare to ask that you erase these awful things that I've done. He continues to say, he says, God blot out my transgressions. Now the word transgressions means wrongdoing and faults. And he's pleading with God to blot it out. I don't know what year you went to high school in, but when I was in high school, we used whiteout. Anyone here ever use a whiteout pen when you're in high school? Yeah, okay. So we would write, especially when I was in middle school, that was kind of before computers were like a thing, and we have to like write out essays, like physically by hand, and you know, you'd write it out with a pen, and, and when you mess up, you scratch it out, and you get the whiteout pen, and you would literally blot out the wrong writings that you did. You would blot it out and you would squeeze it out and it would be all lumpy and you have to blow it and have to dry off and you have to wait like six minutes to write on it again. Okay, that literally we're blotting it out. And that's what David is saying. He's saying, he's saying, God, erase my sins, blot it out because only you can. 
He's begging God for this. He continues in his confession in verse 2. David says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. See, the word iniquity, it's not a word that we use uh, very often, but it means wickedness or sinfulness or immorality or evil. David's saying, I need you to wash this away from me, God. Cleanse me from this. I've done wrong. God, please clean me. You know, like after you have dinner and you have, uh, you know, you have your scraps of food on your dinner plate, and you have ketchup and mustard or relish if you're having hot dogs, um, and, and, and you know, you scrape off, you scrape off the, the rest of your stuff in the organic spin, and then you take that dirty plate, and it's a dirty plate, and you put it in the dishwasher, and then you close the dishwasher, and you put it through the rinse cycle, and then you once put in a dirty plate, right? But when you take it out, it's clean. It's, it's as if it had never been used, assuming that your dishwasher is working properly. And you take it out, and it's perfectly clean and ready to use again. See, that's how God's forgiveness works. When God forgives you, your wrongdoings and your sinfulness and your immorality, they are all washed away. When God forgives you, you're not seen as broken or sinful or dirty. You're seen as perfect and clean. And David here, he's getting it all out on the table. He's saying, God, I'm a broken man. I'm sinful. I'm wicked. I'm dirty. I need you to wash me and clean me and blot it out, God. Please forgive me. See, Psalm 51, it's a courageous confession by a man who is broken and sorry. And he continues in verse 3. David says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. See, David's saying, I know my faults. I know my wrongdoings. He's saying, I know I'm not a good person. He's not hiding it. He's not beating around the bush. He knows that what he did was wrong. And that leads us to stage two. As your outline says, stage two is conviction. David knew that he had sinned, and he knew that it was bad. When Jesus was here on the earth 2,000 years ago, soon before he was going to get killed on the cross, he was sitting with his disciples, with his closest followers, at at the Last Supper, his final supper with them. And he said this as they were sitting around the the dinner table, and I'm paraphrasing this from John chapter 16. He says, guys, I'm going to be leaving you soon. I'm going to go be with the Father. I'm going to go be with God. But I'm leaving, but I'm going to leave someone with you. Now, who was he talking about? Who was he going to leave with his followers? Well, he was talking about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus goes on and explains what the Holy Spirit, what, what he was going to do. And he said, the Holy Spirit's going to be your advocate, going to be your helper. The Holy Spirit's going to be your comforter. And this one might surprise you. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who convicts you. Listen to Jesus' words as recorded in John chapter 16. Jesus says at the Last Supper, he says, when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. As your outline says, the Holy Spirit convicts, meaning he makes you aware of your problems so that you can turn from your ways. Now, you might be sitting here thinking to yourself, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to convict me. Like, let's take a little time out here. I don't know if I really want that. I think I might say no thank you to the Holy Spirit convicting me. I don't need a Holy Spirit guilt trip every time I mess up. 
I don't need more feelings of unworthiness and more feelings of self-doubt. I have enough of those, thank you very much. I'll take a hard pass on the Holy Spirit's conviction. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying, and actually that's not how the Holy Spirit convicts. See, especially now in the summer, we go for lots of walks in our neighborhood. Uh, we have, uh, my wife and I, we have six years old and four-year-old, two boys. And we go for walks, and, and if we get a little farther away from home, I say, okay, guys, let's go back home. And they don't know where to go. They're like, they go in opposite direction. I'm like, no, 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 home is that way. And I point them in the direction to home, and then they start making their way along the side. But I point them towards home. I say, home is over there. See, that's how the Holy Spirit convicts. He always points you towards God. The Holy Spirit is always reminding you that you need God. The Holy Spirit's always reminding you to turn from your old ways, not to go sideways, not to turn to anything or anyone, but to turn to God. You see, the Holy Spirit's conviction is not about each individual sin. The Holy Spirit's conviction is about making you, making you aware that you need God. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever felt that tugging on your heart? In fact, when I was listening to Kathy's testimony, uh, the lady that got baptized, the first baptism video, I was watching her testimony. She said in her testimony, she's like, I felt like I needed to go to church and I wasn't sure why. And I'm thinking, that's what I'm preaching on right now. That's how the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart. Have you ever felt that before? Maybe you're drawn to church. You don't know why. You feel like something's stirring within you. You feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to turn from your old ways and turn to God. Well, if you're feeling that today, in a few minutes when I close, I'm going to actually give you an opportunity to turn to God. But that's exactly how the Holy Spirit convicts. He points you towards God. So as your outline says, the Holy Spirit convicts, but he doesn't condemn See, the Holy Spirit is not here to point out every problem that you have, but to save you from the biggest problem that you have, and that's your separation from God. You see, a, a perfect God and an imperfect mankind can't be in relationship. There's this separation, there's this gap. The Holy Spirit's conviction shows us that we are sinful and that we need God. It says, look, look, at, look at this separation. You need God. Just like I pointed my kids towards home, the Holy Spirit is pointing us towards God. And he's saying, God is the only one who can save you. God is the only one who can forgive you. And guess what? David knew that. David was convicted. So the Holy Spirit convicts, but he doesn't condemn or condone. The reality is, God is not okay with your sinful lifestyle. Just because you're forgiven doesn't give you a license to go and keep on sinning. Just because God shows love to us doesn't mean we should keep on sinning. God doesn't condone the sinful lifestyles that we have. And he certainly didn't condone what David did. But he continues to convict in order for us to turn from our old ways and turn to God. So David knew his faults. He knew his sin. He knew that he needed God. David was convicted and he was sorry. And a sorry David continues to pour out his heart in verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Again, he's saying, God, I've sinned. I'm guilty. If you want to judge me, you are justified. You go ahead. I deserve it. But he says, however... 
Although that's true, although I've done evil, listen to what he asks for in verse 7. He says, God, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. That leads me to stage three. As your outline says, stage three deals with your cleansing. See, David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. I guess the most logical question here is, what in the world is a hyssop? <laughs> well, the hyssop is, a, is an herb in the mint family, and one of its main uses was for cleansing. And the Bible mentions hyssop a number of times, many times actually in the Old Testament, and it's used uh, in the ceremonial cleansing of houses and people. An example of a ceremonial cleansing of a person was when someone had leprosy, which was a skin-eating disease. They would use hyssop as, as a sorrow, ceremonial cleansing of that person. The point is this. When an Old Testament writer thought about a hyssop plant, they thought about cleansing. Hyssop represented cleansing. And David's saying, Lord, I take the place of a moral leper. My sin is a flesh-eating disease. Purge me with hyssop so I can be clean. Make me whiter than snow. And a broken David then says in verse 10, he says, God, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I want you to imagine for a moment the condition that David's heart would have been in the moment that he did this, this horrific thing. Imagine the condition and the dark places that his heart would have been in when he saw Bathsheba bathing, when he had her brought to, to his palace, when he slept with her, when he murdered her husband. I mean, David's heart was in a dark, dark place. And now he's saying, God, I want a new heart. I want a pure heart. He's saying, create in me a heart that's new so everything can flow out of that new place. He's saying, I don't want to be the man that I was. I want to be a new person. Make me a new person. Give me a new heart. He's saying, God, and if you do this, if you give this to me, if you show me this undeserved forgiveness, if you, if you don't abandon me, if you restore me, verse 13 says, then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back from you. In verse 14, David says, God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. He says in verse 15, God, if you open up my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. He's saying, God, if you cleanse me, if you give me a new heart, if you restore me, if you forgive me, I will be a new man. David's saying, God, if you forgive me, as your outline says, I will change. In response to God's forgiveness, David promised a changed life. Now, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, so God's going to forgive this guy. That doesn't seem very fair. How does an adulterer and a murderer get off that easy? Like, is this guy going to get off scot-free? Is he going to get full forgiveness with no consequences? Well, no, that's not what is going to happen at all. In fact, there was a lot of consequences for David's actions that day. There was a huge domino effect that happened in David's life. From that moment when he took Bathsheba and killed her husband, his family started to get torn apart. He had sons that died because of this incident. His reign took a downward spiral from that very moment. 
See, there was a lot of consequences for David's actions, but he was still forgiven. He was still forgiven. And in turn, of God, uh, in turn for this forgiveness, David promised a changed life. Listen, if we can learn anything from David's life, it's the fact that you don't need to be perfect in order to have a life that pleases God. I'm going to say that again. If we can learn anything from David's life, it's the fact that we don't have to be perfect in order to have a life that pleases God. Can I get an amen? Sometimes we think that God will love us more if we're, if we're perfect. That's not true. Sometimes we try to earn God's love and acceptance by being better people, but that's not true. We can't earn it. You don't need to be perfect in order to have a life that pleases God. God didn't look for perfection in David's life. He looked for repentance. And what did that repentance look like? Well, he looked for a heart that wanted to change. He looked for a soft heart. He looked for someone who wanted to get things right. He looked for someone who was sorry. And this penitential psalm tells us all we need to know about how sorry David was. And so God saw a man who was broken and sorry and willing to change, and God forgave him. And guess what? God can do this very same thing for you. Even after a massive failure in your life, you can be forgiven. Even after a massive mistake, you can be cleansed. Even after a massive downfall, your story can be rewritten. All you need to do is turn to God and repent. God's looking for you to say sorry. And guess what? God will never get tired of hearing you say sorry. He's looking for a person that wants to change, a person that wants to make it right. And if that's your heart, if that's what you want, you could accept God's unfailing love in your life today. And that leads me to today's big idea. Every week we like to sum up the teaching in one big idea, and here it is for today. The penitential psalms remind us that no matter what you've done, if you're sorry, you can be saved. No matter what you've done, if you're sorry, you can be saved. See, your future is not determined by your failures, but by God's forgiveness. David's future wasn't determined by this failure. It was determined by God's forgiveness. In fact, God called David a man after his own heart. No matter how far you've run away from God, you can be forgiven if you're sorry and you have a repentant heart. The fact is that God's love is greater than your faults. We don't deserve God's love. We can't earn it, but he still offers it to you. The Apostle Paul says God's love surpasses knowledge. We can't even understand it. We can't fathom it, but still God lavishes his love on us. We can't understand why he lavishes on us, but he gives it to us nonetheless. And he offers it to you and to me as a gift. And it's all about our heart. It, do you have a soft heart? Do you want to turn to God today and accept this free gift of love that he's offering you? Why don't you bow your heads with me as we close?